Well, hopefully you're at 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, and let's take a moment to read our text, and the title of my message this morning is The Strong Delusion. Verse 1, now brethren, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, his second coming, and our gathering together to him, we ask you, that is the rapture of the church, not to be soon shaken in mind or troubled either by spirit or by word or by letter, as if some of us, as though the day of the Christ or the Lord had come. Let no one deceive you by any means, for that day will not come unless the falling away comes first, and the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God, or that is worshipped, so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? And now you know what is restraining, that he may be revealed in his own time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed." whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is is according to the working of Satan, with all power, signs, and lying wonders, and with all unrighteous deception among those who perish, because they did not receive the love of the truth, that they might be saved. And for this reason, God will send them strong delusion that they should believe the lie, that they all may be condemned who did not believe the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Some time ago when I was walking in Woodfield Mall, there was a gentleman with his kids, and one of his kids, well, let's just say it, uh, had other ideas about their adventure into the Woodfield Mall. This young kid was pulling his dad's arm, saying, please, we got to go, we got to go, we got to go. And there's a section of Woodfield where they can play on uh, these different um, sculptures and toys and so forth. And of course, that's where he wanted to head to. And he was pulling and pulling and pulling and pulling. His dad says, no, you're going to wait. You're going to wait until we get there as a family. And he kept pulling, no, 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 I don't want to wait. I don't want to, I don't want to, I don't want to. And he was making a real, real, uh, well, let's put it this way, spectacle within the mall. And then the dad did something I never thought he would do. The dad said, fine, and let go of his hand. And I was like, oh my. And he must have heard me because he turned back and looked at me and he says, this is parenting. And I was like, this is parenting. You just let the kid, he goes, just wait. The kid took off just beelining, but of course, he wasn't real sure about everything, so he kept looking over his shoulders as he's running forward. This kid ran right into a directory sign at about 100 miles an hour, and the dad said, now he'll wait. I never forgot that. Autumn's run into many poles in life. No, Um, but I'll never forget that example of parenting. Let me ask you a question. 
When you imagine the judgment of God being placed upon the world, how do you envision it occurring? Well, if you've grown up in the time that I have and remember when during the Easter season they would play the, you know, Ten Commandments, of course Moses looks like Charlton Heston. Maybe your vision of God's judgment is the pouring out of the ten plagues as they portrayed within that movie. Or of course the crashing of the water as it comes back together to engulf the uh, Egyptian soldiers towards the end of the movie. Or maybe your envision of God's judgment and wrath being poured upon this earth are those illustrations and depictions that are painted for us in the book of Revelation. Meteoroids and asteroids and cataclysmic events here on this world. But is it possible that God's judgment begins with the letting go of our hand? Allowing us to do exactly what we want to do. Embracing the lie because we have refused to adopt the truth. Is it possible that God will simply solidify us in our personal decision towards Him and His truth? Allowing us to do exactly what we believe we want to do. Letting us go to do what we want to do. It's a scary thing when God lets go. God did all He could to save mankind from their sin. Paul the Apostle, in one of his last letters, written to a young man named Timothy, wrote these words, and I'd like to read them to you if I may. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1-7, through 7, let me just read them for you. Just listen carefully. Therefore I exhort first of all that supplications, prayers and intercessions and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings and those who are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time, for which I was appointed a preacher and an apostle, and I am speaking the truth in Christ, not lying, a teacher of the Gentile in faith and truth." Paul says, I want you to pray for those that are around you, from the various kings that are up here in the upper echelon of the, of the society down to the lowliest of person. Because God has done all that He can do to reach out to them, demonstrate His love, and to provide salvation for them. Pray for them because God desires that all men be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. That's His desire. The greatest expression of love is found in John 3.16 when God says, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whomsoever shall believe in Him shall not die, shall not perish, but have everlasting life. God has done all that God can do. And yet, as we stated last week very clearly, 
when the truth is abandoned, a vacuum is created in the heart and in the mind of that individual. A void that must be filled with something. Everyone believes something and acts upon that belief, whatever that belief may be. Some may not have even identified that belief that they hold so dear and treasure so deeply. But everybody believes something. But as Paul made it abundantly clear in our text last week, that the abandonment of the truth led that, opened that vacuum for the adoption of the lie. And that lie will be solidified in the person of the Antichrist who will deceive and persuade the whole world to worship him rather than God. And as a result, God responds to mankind and lets go of their hand. Those who have chosen to believe the lie and abandon the truth. You may never have thought of the judgment of God being displayed and manifested in such a way. So many theological questions are created in the wake of that understanding. As bad as it is now, let us only consider that His letting go of of our hand is going to be even worse. That even when we don't believe that God is working, He is obviously actively involved in His creation. But that time will come to an end. Verses 11 and 12 have perplexed me ever since I became a Christian 33 years ago when I was three. The one day everybody switched to decaf. I've always asked myself, what does this look like? What does this mean? Is this consistent with the character of God? Is this something so unique that the world has never seen such a thing as this before? But we have seen this before. We have seen this displayed for us in the Old and the New Testament where God allows the judgment to come forth in the wake of deception. When one refuses to receive and believe the truth, God gives them over to the lie. When one abandons the righteousness of God and suppresses the understanding of that righteousness and the knowledge of that righteousness in unrighteousness, then he gives them over to their lusts. It's a very scary thing when God lets go. But let us see here in verse 11. We begin as Paul now concludes his statement here in this chapter when he says, And for this reason, it's a conclusion statement. What reason is that? Look at 9 and 10 with me. The coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan, with all power, signs, and lying wonders, and with all unrighteous deception among those who perish, because they did not receive the love of the truth, that they might be saved. What reason? Because they did not receive the love of the truth, that they may be saved. It is a consequence to their decision. It's a result of their abandonment of God's truth. And for this reason, God then brings upon them judgment. 
by allowing them, solidifying them through the strong delusion in which he allows them to embrace and to adopt, solidifying and ratifying, if I may, their abandonment and rebellion against God that therefore leads to condemnation. Scary verse. But is this consistent with God? It is interesting to me that in the Old Testament we have examples of such an event. Of God acting in similar ways. In 1 Kings 22, a lying spirit is given that God's judgment may come upon them. In Ezekiel 14.9, God says, I influence the false prophet to speak the manner in which he will to judge himself and to those who will listen. God moving, judging, solidifying these individuals in their perceived perspective. In the book of Isaiah, Isaiah writes in Isaiah 19.14, when he says, The Lord has mingled a perverse spirit in their, her mists and has caused Egypt to err in all of her works as a drunken man staggers in his vomit. Ten chapters later, once again, Isaiah writes, Pause and wonder. Blind yourself and be blind, for they are drunk, but not with wine. They stagger, but not with intoxicating drink. For the Lord has poured out on you the spirit of deep sleep, meaning they cannot see, and has closed your eyes, namely the prophets, and he has covered your heads, namely the seers. God cuts it off. That's it. No more. As we look further in the Old Testament, we discover an individual found in the book of Exodus. We know him simply as Pharaoh. And in Exodus chapter 8, we learn that Pharaoh, when instructed by Moses to let the people of Israel go, it says quite clearly, twice, that Pharaoh hardened his heart against God. That Pharaoh rejected and disobeyed the instructions of God and hardened his heart even further. But then the language changes. And it goes from the Hebrew word that indicates one hardening to their own hearts to a Hebrew word found in three verses following that means one who has now been placed in a solidified state, meaning God has confirmed what that individual has already begun. Hardening that individual's heart. And then three times in that same chapter, it says that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. But God was responding to the disobedience of Pharaoh. Knowing that Pharaoh was never going to obey God. And hardened his heart. Indicating that God now had solidified them, him, and the nation of Egypt, and let go of their hand. When we come to the New Testament, we come to a chapter in Romans that I believe every Christian should familiarize themselves with, specifically in our current stage of our culture's development today. 
But there's a phrase that Paul uses over and over and over again that is found repeated. As Paul begins to write, of course, we're talking about the same author of 2 Thessalonians, the same author of 2 Timothy and 1 Timothy. When Paul writes, he says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness because what may be known of God is manifest in them. For God has shown it to them. People who purposely try to suppress their individual knowledge of the existence of God. Paul goes on to say that creation tells us in a general manner that there is a God and that He exists. He later goes on in chapter 2 to further that by saying that the conscience of man, the consciousness of man, is another indication of the existence of God. When Adam and Eve fell in the garden and their conscience was awoken to the fact of good and evil, that conscience created what I like to call an echo chamber, allowing for conviction to take place in the heart and the mind of the individual. Allowing that conscience to allow the the conviction of the Spirit to resonate within us, to show us and to lead us and to guide us. And to convict us, of course, into coming into Christ first and foremost. But these individuals, Paul says specifically, the wrath of God is coming upon now. Let us once again understand and identify the wrath of God. How many of you are thinking about, you know, smoke and fire and brimstone coming upon the heads of these individuals? Elijah standing on top of the mountaintop saying, calling down the fire from heaven on the pagan priests. Or is the wrath of God simply manifested in the releasing of their hand? Why do I say that? Because notice what Paul writes as we further go on within the chapter. In verse 24 of that same chapter, Therefore God gave them up to uncleanness. And that's the phrase that terrifies me. God gives them over to their own lusts, their own wants. God gives them over to these things, allowing them to dive into the depth of the depravity in which they desire to experience. Allow them to suppress the knowledge and the consciousness that He has allowed for their hopeful repentance because again, desiring all men to be saved. He has now gave them up to uncleanness in the lust of their hearts to dishonor their bodies amongst themselves who exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worship and serve the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. Two verses later, Paul again states, For this reason God gave them up, there's that same phrase again, to vile passions, for even their women exchanged the natural use for what is against nature. And then he concludes by saying this within that chapter, And even if they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind to do things which were not fitting. 
being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness. They are whisperers and backbiters, haters of God and violent, proud boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful, who knowing the righteous judgment of God, that those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. God is not only dealing with those individuals who suppress personally the knowledge of God within their hearts in unrighteousness, but He's also dealing with those who approve of their actions. And God gave them up. And God gave them up. And God gave them up. It's amazing to me that one of the scariest aspects of God's judgment is when we come to a point that God gives us up. Now, we don't know where that point is. Only God does. Only God knows when we have hardened our heart so convincingly, so strongly, that He knows it's beyond a point of no return. I'm glad that that's up to God and not up to us. Because I'm sure that when I got saved back in the 1980s, many had thought that I had gone past that line of no return. And I'm so glad for the grace of God, aren't you? Maybe you can say that about yourself. I'm so glad that there were individuals who allowed God to work in my life and to mentor me and to help me grow in my faith in Jesus Christ, who didn't write me off So this by no means allows us or confirms in any way, shape, or form that we are justified in writing any individual off. No one is out of the reach of God's hands. But let us be be aware and let's be warned. There is a point of no return. For God shall give them up. The wrath of God displayed in such a way. I never saw that before, many say. I don't know where our nation is in the sight of God. But I do know that the decisions we make in the next few months will ratify that decision one way or another. I know that no president can revive our land. But I'm thankful for the president that we have that believes that God can revive our land. We need God to intercede because I am telling you and I'm sure this is no news to you, people's lives are being destroyed. People are dying without hope. We are seeing in some regards the manifestation of spiritual warfare that we've only talked about in theological and academic terms. As the ideologies crash on the shores of our society, like waves pounding and eroding away the foundation we see that now more than ever, we need to know what we believe and why we believe it. We need to ask God for the boldness to speak the truth. We need to ask God to drag out of the closets of our hearts and our minds those sins that are keeping us from all that God has for us. We need to surrender to Christ today. 
We need to full on just say, Lord, take all of me, that's it. Whatever I have, it's yours. Everything is on the line now. And the reason I'm so passionate about this is not simply because I love the nation in which we live, but because I have a 21-year-old daughter who hopes to one day get married and have a family of her own. Maybe you have children and you hope to see a future that they can enjoy a society that you enjoyed growing up where ideas can be talked about and not canceled, right? One of the highlights of our church has to be the youth group that meets every Friday, every other Friday. There are times, and those who are part of it can attest to it, that at least three quarters of the sanctuary is filled. And we're a little different than other youth groups. Uh, We've been told that by the people who attend. Because when we started regathering after the lockdown, we discussed things that, well, you just may not consider being discussed in the youth group. As some youth groups were talking about, you know, Christ may be found in various films that our Hollywood is releasing. We were talking about COVID-19. We were talking about Black Lives Matter. We've talked about um, the shootings in Chicago. We've talked about the injustice of pedophilia and race and, and uh, human trafficking. We've just touched on that a little bit. These kids want to know the truth. And one of the things that terrifies individuals in our nation is when people are aware of the ideologies that have been adopted and see the flaws within them. The more we can talk about uh, critical theory and showing it for the lie that it is, the more we can educate people and show them why people are doing what they are doing. Because a time is coming when the Antichrist will come to the front of the world stage. As the rapture of the church takes place, the Spirit removing the body of Christ, it will allow for, in the wake of that event, the rise of the Antichrist behind it to succeed it. And at that point, he will just plunge the world into an atmosphere of deception. Politically showing himself to be an astute politician. Economically, he'll show himself to be a financier extraordinaire. He will do what no other could do by unifying the world's religions. And people will say, peace and peace, peace. Oh, look at the peace that he is bringing in. But then the Bible says that an assassination attempt takes place. The woeful shepherd is injured, right hand, right eye. And then on the third day, Revelation 13, he rises again. Again, I say it, Satan is not a creator, he's a counterfeiter. And the world will then hail the Antichrist as a deity and filled with Satan, not the Holy Spirit, not with God, but filled with Satan, he will plunge the world into a time that the Bible calls the Great Tribulation Period, the last three and a half years. And during this seven-year period of time, God will let go and allow people to be solidified in their choice of embracing the lie 
because of their abandonment of the truth. And He'll give them over to their heart's desires. You know, I often, you know, read in a poem or see in a Hallmark card, you know, oh, I hope you have your heart's desire. I don't want my heart's desire. The Bible tells me my heart's desperately wicked. Who can know it? I want God to take the heart of stone out of me and give me a heart of flesh after Him. This is the beginning of God's wrath. That God gives them over. Now, you may be wondering, based on our text in Romans 1, is this already occurring? And the answer is yes. Let us know and understand that the further we reject God within our society, the further we push Him out of our society and out of our conscience. That's what we're actually doing. Let us be clear with that. Uh, Maybe we're not clear with that. Removing the Ten Commandments from a, a courthouse is not removing the Ten Commandments from the courthouse. It's removing the reminder to our conscience of the Ten Commandments. That's what's actually taking place. And each and every time we see the things of God removed from our society, we are visually illustrating and manifesting our suppression of the truth and unrighteousness. That's what's taking place. Maybe God will let go. Maybe God will let go. But like that father that I saw at Woodfield, the intentions of his heart was clear. He wanted his young man to grow and to be obedient. He wanted his young man, his son, to enjoy all of life's goodness by being the man that he needs to be to do so. And I think of God and how God views us as his children and how God looks at us and interacts with us like a caring, loving father. As Paul says, we can call him Abba, Father. And yet, remember that he loves us too much to leave us in the way that he has found us. And sometimes he must chasten us as parents have to correct their kids or in this particular parent's case, allow their kid to run into the directory side. It was a gamble, I'll say that. Oh, the little guy wasn't hurt very badly. He just, I think it was more of his pride as he laid there and cried. Of course, he sounded like he was dying and being eaten by a Tyrannosaurus Rex. But that being said, I don't think he was hurt that bad at all. He got up right away when he saw that the playground was just a few feet away. But you know, sometimes I think God has to let let us go a little bit to allow us to see our own failures. I don't know. But I do know the heart of God and that He's good and that He loves us more than we could possibly imagine. And He demonstrated that love through an event that history cannot erase, the sending of His only begotten Son, Jesus Christ. And that on the third day, the tomb was still empty and is empty to this day. So when we hear about the wrath and the judgment of God, let us place it in the context and knowing that God has done all that he possibly could to save his creation. 
He came and was born in a manger. He grew up and watched the oppression of the Roman Empire upon the Jewish people. He heard their cries and their laments. He was baptized by John and then went into the wilderness to fight a battle that we lost. Being tempted by Satan three times and in each time in the weakness of his flesh but in the strength of the Spirit. He overcame that temptation by the Word of God. He then came and started his earthly ministry, never leaving or proceeding a hundred miles further than where he, from where he was born. And he was embraced by common people. He was embraced by those people that society had cast out and said they are too far gone. Jesus said, no one's too far gone. Not for me. And he reached out to those people and he was criticized and rebuked for doing so. He loved them in a way that the world had not seen prior. And a word was created to to, uh, speak of that love. The word agape was once again resurrected from the uh, almost mere extinction of its existence back in that culture. This man agaped us like we've never seen before. And he's asked us to agape one another as he has agaped us. And then the religious leaders and all of their hate and vile venom came at him with everything they possibly had. But the people said, where else have we heard such words of such authority being spoken? But eventually betrayed by one who followed him, taken before Pilate, and the ultimate question was asked, what is truth? And standing there was truth incarnate. God himself. And then he was beaten, as you know. He was mocked, as you know. He was crucified, as you know. And he forgave. That's the God of all the universe. What more could God have done to save us? So when people say, the judgment of God is simply not fair, I ask them, what more could God have done to save you? He sacrificed himself for you. Tell me, please, what more could God have done for you? But it's unjust. God is loving. He is love. And he sent his son to prove that love. Now believe on him. And those three hours of darkness, those hours that Christ experienced of darkness, death, and separation, three aspects of God's judgment will be upon him and not upon you. That's the purpose of the gospel. So when people tell me that the, God's judgment is unfair, I ask, what more could have God done? But eventually they'll solidify themselves in their position. God will send them the strong delusion as we read in our text in verse 11. And for this reason, God will send them strong delusion that they should believe the lie, that they may be condemned who did not believe the truth, but had pleasure. Their life had pleasure in unrighteousness. It means satisfaction, fulfillment. It's what they sought day in and day out. It's what they worshipped. It's what they wanted. God said, fine. Now go after that which you want. I'll let you go. But then it's too late. 
the wrath of God displayed in the letting us go.